It is good to be in the same time zone in my brain as everybody else. Apologies, whoever I may have offended last week, I have no idea what I spoke about. I'm not going to talk to look at the video, um, but I was, I was not quite on planet uh, Brisbane. But um, I th- no one left the church. I didn't get any emails, so that's a, that's a great thing. But I'm only a bit of a now and again traveling. You know, pastors, we don't get around too much. We kind of stay pretty close to home. But um, as, a, as a now and again traveler, there's a lot of us here who travel all the time, on planes all the time. You need prayer. <laughs> like, how do you do that? I, I guess, like, I found a new way to eat. You, you ever had to learn the, 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 mid-seat, the mid-seat shuffle? Don't, don't. And then the guy, it's always a guy next to me who decides to go to sleep and put their thing on, and they just, they only ever creep one way, hey? It's on my side. It's like... <laughs> So after four hours, you're like this and you're expected to get... I think, that is not a good existence for humanity. How have we come so far? 2023, and that's what we expect people to endure on a, on a seven or 14-hour plane trip. Like, there's a guy's up the front in business class. They're on business. So that's business class. I'm on holidays. Where's holiday class? Like, I reckon if I'm on holidays, I should be able to stretch out, put my feet up on the chair, get the music playing loud, do all the stuff, spread out, chill out. No, but the, your first experience of holidays is this. And they go, thank God that flight's over. And you get to the airport, everyone hops up quickly and bang their head on the, on the baggage thing, you get all set, then you stop and wait again. What, what numbskull thought that up? Like it's like up and then wait again for another 15 minutes. Then you get out of the out of the plane and you've got to get through immigration. So you've got to wait 10 deep in a queue on the automatic passport thing again. Then you get you get through that, then you get to uh, in a hurry to wait for your bags again. And it's just like it's just constant logjam. Constant what's what let me out, let me free. I'm a free man. I'm gonna walk next time if I can, or row a boat. I'm not gonna these triple sevens are not for me. Yeah, they're banding, they're gonna phase out the A380, the only plane in existence that has any semblance of room because they cost too much. So anyway, so that's my vent. Next time I go on holidays, I'm just asking the church to take up an offering and send me holiday class. <laughs> I think it's upstairs on the 380. It's up there somewhere. I've heard about it. I haven't seen it, but I'm hoping to get there. But anyway, today we're talking about this sort of this sense of logjam, this being compressed in life. And, the, and churches... Um, uh, historically, we, we have experienced this as well um, as a church has tried to find its way in the last hundred years. What does it look like to be Christ's expression of God's people? And we've had all sorts of iterations of what that looks like. And, and in the 80s and 90s, uh, we were starting to suffer a bit because we found that there's a thing called the church growth movement that, that really, the, the premise of that is that if it grows, it's healthy. So in other words, if your church is going really well, it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, and there's, there's some merit to that, absolutely. Uh, but not everything that grows is healthy, I've found, through experience. And, and, the, and you, can, you can grow something big and it doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. It's just gotten big. And so you've got to ask yourselves a lot of questions about what are we doing here and how does it work and how does God want, want to do that? But I've found, I've been part of big churches many times now and uh, over the last 40 or so years. And what I've experienced um, realistically is because the premise is if it's good, it's getting bigger and you get more and more people. Um, and so you get a building this size and think, well, how do we get bigger? Well, let's, let's go into debt and buy a, a bigger building. What a great plan. And so we, we invest millions in tilt slab buildings and big car parks and all this stuff. But is the, is the premise accurate? 
If Jesus came back today, is that what Jesus would do? And this is a, this is a vexing question that happens all the time. If it's God's model, great, let's, let's do that. And it certainly seems to be the model for some places, but I don't believe it needs to be in every place. Because what I found is, if the, if the commitment is to just keep getting bigger and keep everyone together, it's like, uh, it can be a, feel a bit like a hoarding mentality. Let's hoard everyone together. Let's, get a, let's press them in. Let's fit more, you know, that kind of thing. It, it creates this thing like an airport experience. It's, I call it spiritual logjam. And it was a very vexing experience I found because my role, my sort of expertise, if you like, um, was to grow people and to set them free in Christ, see them grow, full of the Spirit, find their gift and calling, and off they go. But what happens when um, a church doesn't want to let you go? What happens if our mindset is, no, we need to just keep getting bigger? But you're, the calling on your life to lead a church may be much bigger than mine. So what am I going to do about that? I haven't got room for you because I've got the mic. So what happens? You end up going. And whether we like it or not, there's a back door. There's an intentional or an unintentional back door. And, and, I, and I found this spiritual logjam. We were, we were setting so many people free over so many years. There was so much fruit, so much of powerful God's ministry that we were seeing sometimes hundreds of people a year ready to go. And then we should have let them go. But the mindset is, let's just get, we can't afford to let them go because we've got to get bigger and bigger. And we need this thing called critical mass, which just means I'm big enough in myself and my own, the own horsepower of what we're doing here that we steamroller our way into success, whatever we deem that to be. And so I saw in the time in my last experience where there's probably 10, maybe 12 um, young couples, um, not all of them couples, but uh, young, who, who had, I knew had a calling to go and plant a church on their life. Not that that's the peak of all of our experience. I want to speak into that a little bit more. That not everyone's called to do that. We're called to all sorts of different environments. But these people were called to plan a church and we wouldn't let them go. And so what did they do? They're, they're entrepreneurial. They're pioneers. They're, they're free thinkers. They're not going to be constrained to, to just sitting there and idling away week in, week out. So much of them went and started their own companies because that's, that was the drive that was in them. And they're now, most of them, very successful in the corporate world but I don't believe that was God's calling on their life, particularly. God's with them and God blessing them, but, but we should have let them go. And so that's haunted me now. Uh, seven or eight years, I've been haunted by that. It haunted me when I saw it happening. And so this spiritual logjam begins to happen, and it can happen as a church, but it can happen in, in our own personal lives as well, where we find that the combined forces of our life, relationships, uh, finances, uh, troubles that go wrong, our careers, all sorts of circumstances... Um, combine together to, to make sure we, they can spider make us stuck in our life. And our internal world is not in the, in the spot where it can break that equilibrium. And we get stuck in our life. And we, we feel like me trying to eat my lasagna in the plane. It's like, the meal's good, but, mate, I'm feeling pretty cramped here in my life. I'm, re I'm ready for the next... And, I, and we, can, we find ourselves unable to break out. And there are three key places where we get stuck in our spiritual life. And I know I have spoken into this a lot, but it is an important issue, but I, I, I'm using this to lead us into some, something else um, together. Three places where we tend to get stuck in our spiritual walk with God, can, where the, the situations conspire against us. The first one is internal. It's, it's identity. It's who do, I, who do I see myself to be? Who do I see myself in relation to God and who God is? Now, there's probably you know, 150, 200 souls here today. And I know there'll be the same amount of views that we have about who God is, how he sees my life should be, and how it's working out. 
It's all different. Based on what? The way I think. What I know, how I view God to be, the, the paradigms, the worldviews in my mind, the hurts, uh, all the stuff. My internal world is constraining and defining who God is and I end up making him in my own image because I have no other reference point. And this whole idea of who am I leads into the next place of being stuck, which is um, the mission. What's, who am I therefore? What's my purpose? Because the way I see myself would determine whether I'm going to live in freedom or not. It's going to determine whether I expect that the addictions and the, and the, the parts of life that normally drive me, I will allow to drive them. If I, if I see myself as someone who's supposed to be free, then that old life is unacceptable and I'll, and I'll find a way in God to not be that person. So my identity will determine even the level of breakthrough in my life. But once I find that, I'm stewarding my life and what's my calling what is this God who's giving me freedom and power? What's he calling me to become? What's it look like to be fruitful? Especially if the ladder, if there was such a thing in the Christian world, doesn't end for every person as being a pastor or a world-class speaker or something like that. What, what about my workplace? What about my family? What does it look like for God to call me powerfully and in freedom in that position? Because that's obviously the majority of where our lives are at the moment. So the, the first one's identity, second one is my purpose and mission. The third one, and really the, when I say the third one, this underpins the two before, is my experience of and my ability to follow God. It's how am I engaging with God through his spirit? How do I see that to be? I watched a show, and I, it's, it's sort of shown every pastor should watch, probably not every Christian should watch. SBS have just released it called uh, Kingdom, I think it was called. Kingdom, and, and it was a bit of a... Uh, 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 an ex-Christian, an, an ex-church guy's view of the Hillsong demise and, uh, and the ramifications of that. And, um, and it's, it's hard watching. I, I, I always struggle to watch them, but I force myself to watch them for the experience to know how people are viewing church. And I think, pastors, we need to constantly be re-referencing ourselves in this sort of a way. But, but what struck me was the end part. and was, it, was, it was so... Um, Hurtful for me for their sake in the sense of this young guy who'd, who'd grown up in uh, churches, he, he finally went and visited a church over in Perth, just a normal sort of church, a Pentecostal expression and such. And there he is sitting in a room with looked like about a thousand people. And the end of the service comes and, and, and the, everyone was invited to stand up. And he, and he just watched this poor guy trigger as it reminded him of all that happened in his life where he was reminded that, no, if I'm spiritual... I'm, I'm the guy with my hands in the air experiencing some personal, physical sensation of who God is, but I'm not that guy. What's wrong with me? And, and it just triggered everything in him and every reason why he left the church, rightly or wrongly. And I just so, the pastor in me just so felt for this, this guy because that is not true. And that's not valid. And that, if that's what he's been taught, then that's wrong. That the, everyone has a similar expression of God that looks and feels and, and produces a certain outcome. It's not like that. Everyone comes to God. And so this third place of being stuck is really, how, how do I process and what does it look like for me to engage with God personally when I'm not a feeler, when I'm not a dancer, you know, when I'm just a, I'm an introverted Queensland conservative thinking guy or girl who doesn't feel much of anything. How do I meet God, you know? And, um, and, it, and we, it, when we break through that, we understand I don't have to feel, it's not supposed to look like, it's just, it's me and God here. And he knows how to get through to me. I know how to, or I can learn how to hear his whispers. I know how to experience what I'm supposed to with him. But every one of us is different. It's a complete mosaic experience. There's no one-dimensional part to it. 
So these three areas of knowing who I am in God, knowing what my purpose is, and, and knowing how it's valid for me to experience him are, are the three major blockages in life. And I've been confronted in the last week or two about 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 20, because it talks into this identity and mission thing and this experience, where Paul says, you know, we're a new creation. I used to joke, we're, I'm a new Croatian, you know, and make a really funny song about that. Miss the whole point. <laughs> But I'm a new creation. And this new creation, he says, uh, are given, uh, we are committed the message of reconciliation. So our identity, this, this new creation, which is those of us in the room who have given their hearts to Christ in faith, we become a new creation. We may not feel different. It's not an experience that we look for. It's an identity piece that's, and also a spiritual piece. But what it means is he's committed to you and I this gospel of reconciliation. So it's in our hands now, this gospel is now in our hands. To go and change the world, to see the kingdom advance, it lies in our hands. It's, it's at an identity level. It's actually who we are. So I want to continue bouncing off in this regard Gideon's story. I, I, I did it very poorly last week. I was all over the show. But I want to come back to Gideon and his story from Judges chapter 6. And we left it where the Midianites were, had formed a culture. Gideon was there hiding away, trying to do his life. He was stuck. The nation was stuck. Everyone was stuck. And his internal world had conspired to sort of keep him hidden, to become this guy that's in a, in a wine press threshing out the wheat so no one would steal it. And we can see that his inner world was governing his view of the situation um, uh, in his nation inside of hopelessness and a real victim sort of mindset and mentality. His view of God was wrong because he had no personal experience or didn't know how to process that. He'd heard, heard the stories, but there was no memory of his own in there. And his view of self was incited by his own sort of low um, view of himself and his family. So we saw last week that God saw him very differently as a warrior who will save. So we, we move on now to Judges 6.15 where we see how Gideon works this through. Because I, I just sense in, a, in many ways, this is what, in, in very different ways, all of us are going through. I think the Lord's calling us together as maybe he's calling all of Brisbane and Australia, who knows. But I'm aware of what is, what is, is happening here. And I want to take us on this pathway that Gideon went on because I think the parallels here, even though it's an Old Testament story, uh, compared to what we go through as well. So Gideon fires back at God. I love, the, I love the audacity of the guy. He says, pardon me, my Lord. But how can I save Israel? God's given him the commission to go and do that. My clan is the weakest of Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. In other words, if you're going to pick anyone, you wouldn't pick me. Why does he come to that conclusion? Because his internal world is mucked up about his identity and his mission and his experience of God. It's just based on this sum of assumptions. And we do exactly the same thing. Do we not do this same thing? I do it as a pastor, and I know from all the conversations I have, we do it. We have this comeback to God. God, I can't make the difference. I'm not the guy up speaking. I'm the, I'm the person in the pew, and I've got a complicated life. I've got a family and I've got a career and I've got a mortgage and it's all gone pear-shaped and I'm just trying to put the whole thing back together. God, can't you just look at my circumstances? I'm not that. But he, but he just looks at you and he ignores all the arguments and says, hello, mighty warrior, how's things? Let's take you on a journey. All these assumptions about how impossible it was didn't even warrant a response from God. God didn't come back at that level at all. And I mean, I feel for the guy. His, his views were understandable. Uh, they were just completely inaccurate. Um, they were broadly assumed by his culture. They were just unacceptable, just as ours are. So each one of us here has, given, has been commissioned and given 
all the power that we need to radically change the communities that, that he's embedded us in. Each one of us. They're actually, I know all the circumstantial reasons why we don't and can't. They're just not valid. And that's the mindset, that's the initial break that needs to happen. See, we think, well, God's not with me. But the question more is, and God puts it back to him, is I wonder if you're with me. Let's just have a talk about that for a moment. What, what posture are we adopting? But what I love about God's grace, he doesn't just come and go, well, off you go. He takes us on a journey. His grace doesn't leave us there. And he's got an agenda for me and he's got an agenda for all of us that's going to look in that whole mosaic, a whole spectrum of ways. But he doesn't leave us there. But it starts with a few steps in a pathway, which I want to go through today. And this will lay a bit of a foundation, I guess, for the future of how we see things around here as well. Step one is this personal encounter. The personal encounter. We have this awareness, as Gideon did, and we do it in our own New Testament sort of a way, where we just, we're just doing life, and we have our own Gideon moment where he says, how, how about we take this thing a bit more seriously? And we feel God knocking on our door, and we often can't put a name to it, we can't put a anything clear to it. We just know there's this irresistible, we feel like we're on something of a, of a fishing line and the master fisherman's just slowly reeling us in and, and we, we might spend some weeks and months or years fighting away and off we go and he just lets it run for a bit then. It just never gets worn out. just keeps reeling us in. And then we get to this point where we go, okay, God, I, I just don't know. I know you're there. I know it's real and all that but we don't know what else. And we get stuck there. We go, what happens next? And you may have been in that spot before. But often if we, if we just consecrate our lives or we allow ourselves to be surrendered and we just turn up on a Sunday or we turn up in our quiet times and say, God, well, well here I am. We find this next step, which is step one, this, this, this personal encounter. And we realise that he's speaking through, the, through a gentle whisper or, and this growing sort of sense of mission. And it, it might be subtle or it might be strong, and I know when I'm distracted, sometimes I have to hear the outside voice of God. But my sense is that for all of us, those whispers are coming through and he's preparing us and he's speaking to us, not because we're special, but just because we're breathing. You know? uh, and he's challenging our assumptions about Christian life. And regardless of what's happened to any of us, he knows who you are, he knows what's happened to you, he knows where you are, and he wants you to know that he's with you, but he reserves the right to speak into your identity because he made you. We can't shake our fist and demand anything of him there. He, he has the prerogative to say, here is who you are. Here is what I'm calling you to do. You are a new creation and I've committed the gospel to you. And wherever you find yourself, wherever our, our life is, whatever that circle is, is that around of the people that we engage with, you are the, the ministers of reconciliation and he's relying on us. It's, it's in our hands to go and get on with the job. And that's frustrating. That's annoying. Because life's tough enough as it is, isn't it? You just think, how are we going to do this? Well, let's, let's, let's keep looking in this. Because what he does is he, he takes it out of the corporate hands. He says, this isn't about Kenmore Church. This isn't about the Catholic Church or the Baptist Church. This is about you. This is personal. And he, and he comes to you by name. And he, and he sits with you like the heroes I talked about last week, John Wesley and Newton and Wilberforce, all these people. And he asks them, let's just change it. Will you surrender to this mission? Are you in for it, knowing what you know to be true? And it's from that point that we either say yes or we say no. And, and if, we, if we don't say yes, if our yes is conditional on all the circumstances, then we find ourselves just tracking around and around again through life. But eventually we say, because God knows how to get through, in the end we just go, well, yes, 
I'm, I'm in for the mission. What, what could it possibly look like? And then it takes us into this next step. This next step is consecration. We, we, we see how this works out in Gideon. It's one of the clearest pictures in the, gospel, in the, in the Bible. Consecration. Where we set apart. We set our lives apart. We set the agendas apart. We submit our rationale and our emotions and everything else. We just say, I'm, just, I'm, I'm in and I'm setting my life apart for you. Do with it what you will, uh, a lot or little. It doesn't really matter. And it's this process of, of building something new and tearing down something old because our lives are already full and we need to empty them of that which doesn't belong to God and fill them again with what he has. And so we see this process in our lives where he, he, he tells us who he is, but then we are aware that believing in God is not enough. And there's so many of us here who have been confronted with this right now, that coming, coming to church on a Sunday, um, it's great. It's never not great. But that doesn't mean you're a part of the church, does it? If you're not connected through fellowship and exercising your gifts and so on, that's what it means to be part of the tribe. You know, everybody's welcome all the time. But it's the same with believing in God. Believing in him is all you need for salvation, but it's not enough to live that life. And I'm not saying, well, it's faith plus anything. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's a natural response, which was just the argument of so much of the New Testament. You're saved by faith. You get that through grace. But then something happens and something overflows. You realise this is who I am now. I can't go back. There is nowhere to go back to. I've, got to. I've surrendered my life. What does that mean? Well, it means tearing down the old and building up something new. And it starts for um, Gideon with this whole idea of sacrifice. And he does it in a really Old Testament way and we do it in a bit of a, a, a New Testament way, a, a sacrifice of praise or a, a, we lay our lives on the altar and such. But he did it. But we can learn, still learn a lot from it. We pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 6. The angel of the Lord, so what he did, he, he, he set out an Old Testament offering. He cut some meat up and made some stuff. And he'd, that, that's how they did it back then. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense now. It's like, let's make a meal and just... Anyway, God meets him there. God meets him right there. Because what Gideon's trying to do is say, are you real? You know, I'm setting my life apart. Are you going to back me up when, I, when we get there? So the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread well, with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. And fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. And when Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And back then that sort of meant you were going to die because no one could look on God and die. You know. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So we see this idea where the fire of God falls on sacrifice. And this seems to be such a pivotal, important moment where... It's in that quiet space at home or it might be happening right here, right now for some people where you say, Lord, I don't know so much, but I'm, I'm just in. I just say yes. And we, lay, we consecrate our life and, and God's fire falls on that sacrifice. And that fire looks like the presence of God and his Holy Spirit. It, it, it just looks like this sense of release and relief where this burden of the world is taken from my shoulders once again. And we just see that God's fire comes and just begins to burn through our life and purge through our life. And it's sort of a polarising awareness that God's real and there's more. And it, and it may even leave you a little numb. It, it did for me a few times in my life. And sort of embarrassed that you've historically doubted before or you haven't been in this place before where you, where you just say, I'm in, all in, 100%. But somehow in this, in this spot, we find that something needs to change, that something needs to overflow from this. And you might have been in this spot before. You go, well, what's next? What do I do now? What now? 
Well, the next stage is really interesting in Gideon's life. He's called to build an altar. In verse 24, it says, So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it peace. The Lord is peace. So an altar there is just a bunch of stones. I saw a heap of them over in Ireland. Uh, I don't think they were Christian, but they were just old Neolithic piles of stones that they used to use. They used to use them as portals. Can you believe that? Was, uh, anyway, sidetrack. This was the way they did it. They just didn't know what else to do. It was sort of the Bronze Age, Stone Age. So what do we do? We build an altar out of, what? Out of, well, out of rocks. That's all, all we've got. And it was their way of saying, here I stand. This is what happened here. I met God here, and I'm always going to remember this. And it was a, rem a remembrance place, but it was also a dedication to say, I'm, I'm living a new way now. There, there's new things in my life. I'm building a new altar. So he's come and he's done sacrifice, and now he's saying, there are, there are new things I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to build the altar. So, and we do that. We, we become a Christian, for example, or we might have other phases as we go on, where we say, now I'm dedicating myself to my quiet times. I'm, I'm giving more to the church, I'm, I'm increasing my service. Whatever, whatever it is that I'm doing that I sense God calling me to do is, as this consecration act. I'm giving this part of my life to God. And we build this new altar. But then he goes on, because that's good. Sacrifice was good. Uh, building an altar was good, but it was insufficient. And he takes him to this third place. In verse 25, it goes on. The same night the Lord said to him, you can almost sort of sense the Lord going, we're, we're there, we're getting there, well done, but... Take the second bull. I'm not sure why the second. There's probably some deep theological reason. Bull number one was okay for the day. Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. And using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So he's saying, you've, you've built something new, but the old is still remaining. And this is what we do as part of this transition. We, we're saying, God, yes. Saying, God, yeah, I'm going to build this new part of my life. But there's all this old stuff. There's this old ambition to become wealthy. There's this old um, ambition to become someone of significance. There's this old part of me that's addicted to pornography or it's, or it's having an affair or it's doing what all this, there's all this old stuff and God says, great, I love that new thing, that's got to go because I'm not going to compete with that. I have the right to call you out and say, oh, you're going to live from the, from the spirit, not from the flesh. And building an altar to God in our life is good, it's just inadequate. We've got to tear down the old altars in our life that reserve the right to live from the world and not live from God. And he just, he'll call you out on that. And when he does that, there's just something incredibly freeing about it when he does. When we just say, I'm going to dance to one drum only um, because I know compromise is going to lead me inevitably to retreat. And so we burn the bridge. We blow the bridges up behind us. We burn the boats, as, as Ortez did when he, when he landed in South America. It's the only way he could find real commitment. Let's cut the way back out. So, and so we take those parts of our life out. And this is what we've seen uh, this year in our church, if you've been keeping track, we've had a whole bunch of baptisms where people have said, I'm, I'm burning the bridges, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a symbolic act that represents I'm cutting off this old life, I'm committing to something brand new now. And if you're struggling with that area of life, we understand that and, and there's a lot that we do uh, through our courses and we have two courses coming up called Refocus and Reform, they're going to start in mid-July. And if you're finding that this is a process that you need to go through where you need to cut off the old and build a proper altar to God in your life, 
And it may be as simple as you need, to, you need to be baptized because you haven't done that yet. Make a public declaration. But there might be parts of your life that you ha- you've struggled to cut off right now. These courses help you go through that and they include a retreat halfway and there's lots of prayer ministry and lots of incredible stuff. They're life-changing courses and they're going to start on July 17. Reform is all about um, cutting off the old uh, power of the flesh in your life, your historical sort of stuff. Refocus is all about how do I steward this calling in my life and we haven't done that one for a few years around here. So keep an eye out. They're going to start in in mid-July and the registrations will come open in the next week or two for that. But then he moves on. So we've torn down the old altar. We've we've built a new one. And you'd think that's it. But what happens next is is sort of funny. And it's really not. But it's incredibly freeing. It's a step three I've called confrontation. So we're consecrating our life and we've torn down the old. But now we hit this moment where now it gets confronting because my big decisions to challenge the status quo are going to affect other people. What Gideon had to do was tear that altar down. A lot of people like that altar. In fact, the whole town was using that. He was challenging the status quo and he hadn't been given permission to do that. He didn't run a town meeting and say, I hope it's okay, Uh, can we take a vote? He just snuck in there at night and he just tore this religious centre of the place away. He was obviously going to get burnt from that himself. Something was going to go pear-shaped there. And so the whole townspeople rose up and they wanted to kill him. Uh, how dare you? This is our religion, mate. You know, what, what do you think you're doing? And um, we find that our decision to build a new altar and to tear down an altar does this same dynamic. Suddenly the people in our life start to realise something shifted here. You're not compromising anymore and, and now there's a whole issue that you're singling in on and I'm not sure I want to single in on that issue. They may even be Christian people. And so what had to happen for Gideon was uh, his, his father had to intervene in the end and to say, what do you think you're doing? You're going to kill my son over this? You don't think Baal can take care of himself? And so they let him off the hook and they, they renamed him to uh, Jerob Baal, which means let Baal contend with the guy. You know? and, and if Baal, the, the, the little G God is real, he'll, they'll deal with him. So they backed away. But when we find that no one else shares our priorities, we start shifting our life and things change. Um, it's going to alter relationships. It may cost relationships and it may build some others. It's a binary moment. It's a polarising in our life. We start to say, no, I'm confronting the world right now and saying, this is where I stand. And it may not be where everyone else stands. And it may be just in a singular way. It might be about a, a narrow issue in your life. For me, it was easy becoming a pastor. I was already going to church in that sense, you know. Um, but it, I hit a, hit a moment about a year in where I was confronted about the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'd experienced the power of God over the years and I knew all about that. But somehow I'd allowed myself to, to allow the subject to change as if it was a, a secondary part of Christian life. That, that it's unusual for God's Spirit to so work in us that we see the miraculous and we see God transforming lives all the time. And we see the gifts of the Spirit working and it's normal. Because I'd gotten used to a Christianity where... We live by faithfulness alone. Nothing wrong with it, it's just inadequate. But we're living by the best we could produce in our own horsepower. And I was convicted by reading a couple of books. And it reminded me of what I've seen. And it reminded me that I wasn't stewarding what I'd seen well. And I'd minimised the work of the Holy Spirit. I'd minimised what should be maximised. And it was just me. It was just my thing. It's not everyone's thing. I don't know many people who are confronted in the same way. But I just became irritated and irritable. 
And I just became annoying of most people around me, especially those who I was on staff with at the church at the time, because now Pat's changing tack. Pat's changing the subject. Now he's talking about this stuff. What about all of that? And I think, well, everyone else is talking about all of that. This is the thing God's got on my mind. This is the thing that seems to matter. And I just became singular about what I was talking about. And I lost a lot of friends and I lost a lot of credibility in ministry at the time until it sort of built up again over the years as God proved his own point. That you don't have to defend him, just let him loose and just see what he will do. And I've never changed a subject since then. But it's defined who I am, it's defined what I'll do. And also because of that, it's defined a lot about what I won't do. So there's now a whole bunch of areas of what would be called acceptable Christian ministry. And I'm not interested in them because everyone else can go and do that because I'm called to this thing. And that's why this is a church of spirit and truth. We don't change the subject here. We expect God can do anything and he probably will. And we see miracles and we pray for people all the time. It's just not going to change unless you boot me out and feel free one day. Contract's up at the end of the year, take a shot. (laughs) I know you love me. I, I saw... Another, another person I know was a missionary, and um, I won't give their name here because uh, it's just unnecessary, but they were doing great work in Mozambique, and they had an encounter with God, a, a life-rocking encounter, where they were on death's door, and God healed them and, and filled them with the Holy Spirit, and, and they began to do just incredible uh, ministry outpouring out of that. But their greatest backer, that was, this is the bit that interested me, their greatest funder came to them and said, uh, if you keep doing and talking about this, we're going to have to disassociate ourselves from you because you're mad. You know, we we, we can't be associated with this ministry. What, the ministry of raising people from the dead? You don't want to be part of that? No, because we don't believe in that. Okay. Um, So the choice was lose all their funding or keep going on with what God was doing in their life. And they said, I'm just going to go on with... It wasn't even a... They didn't pray about it. They said, well, see you later, dollars, you know, and we're talking millions. And so they they went off and they just did their own thing and lost all their backing. It was just them for a couple of years and they they really struggled. They were in the dust in in Africa. But suddenly you you hear stories where there's there's great tribulation in the country and the next thing you hear of them, they've planted 10,000 churches. Where's that come from? didn't come from money. It came from the Holy Spirit doing incredible work. And they just didn't change the subject. They just kept going on and they confronted, they confronted the whole Christian world. And to this day, they're incredibly polarising people. But you can't deny what God's doing in, them, in Africa. And so they're telling their story and they're doing it their way. And we'll each have this periodically coming up in our life. You will too. It's not just for missionaries and pastors. Certainly not. We're the weird ones. You guys are the normal ones. You're the one who, come on, well, some of us are less normal, but uh, which is which? Is that normal or, uh, say la. But we'll have these moments where it'll, it'll force us to confront. Here I stand, I don't care what it costs. If it costs me my life, it costs me my life, but this is who I am, this is what I'm called to do. I'm making a stand in my life. And, it, and in the end, we make these decisions and it's the most freeing thing we could possibly do. Suddenly, we find ourselves in uh, clear air. I'm not fettered anymore. I might be right, I'm, I may not be, but I've, I've done the decision on, based on the best of what I know and where God's leading me. And there's just incredible f- uh, freedom there because you've burnt your bridges and you're not shackled by old re- allegiances and politics anymore. 
You're just doing it God's way and you know somehow God's going to make this thing work. This is a life of faith now because you can't rely on the world to supply because you've just cheesed most of them off. But what it does do is it singles you out with a whole heap of credibility as it did with Gideon. Suddenly he wasn't just a guy who was just poking around the edges. Now this guy's stuck his neck up and everyone knows this is a guy who'll do anything for Yahweh. If, you know, and so suddenly the Midianites come in their, in their thousands to take the country over. They hear that courage is in the wings. Someone's breathing fire again. So they, they come in and they, and they threaten to take the whole place over. And Gideon just blows his trumpet, which seemed to mean something back then. It's a bit like an Instagram post, I think, back then. He just blew his trumpet and said, guys, gather in, we're going to war. And everyone just said, absolutely. They're in. This credibility just rose because they knew this guy was not shackled to the world at any level. It was all God or it was nothing. And they said, well, that's who we are and that's what we're in for. And somehow this courage that comes. And uh, in my own experience with the, with the whole ministry through the, of working with the Holy Spirit, it, just, it gave permission for a whole bunch of people to rise up in courage and, and do ministry that we, we had never seen them do before as they came un, under the umbrella of that sort of polarising stand. And you may have to be called to do the same thing in your workplace where you know you've compromised language or you've, you've compromised things that you've done for the sake of fitting in or whatever it is. Once you consecrate your life to God, there becomes this confrontation. You go, here I stand. You may have embarrassed yourself. You may even say it wrong. You may make mistakes in the whole delivery of the whole thing, but it doesn't really matter. The message that comes across is God is real, he is powerful, and I am all in. And let the cards fall as they're going to fall. So God's been moving in, in, in us as a church, and not just our church. I, I deliberately put a post up some months ago on, on social just saying God is moving everywhere. And he, does, he genuinely seems to be. There's, there's movement that God is calling his church in many ways. Um, we've seen the demonstrations around here, uh, some subtle, some not so subtle. And he's prompting people here to, to give uh, more, and I bless that faithfulness, to give in their time as well and all sorts of things. He's clearing away the blockages. Why? Because he's preparing us. He's, he's, he's sending us out. And it's not going to be so much a, a one day we're going to get sent out. It's no now. Now he's, he's sending us out and this is a process of us taking those next steps. See, God's either sent you to the, to the people that you're going to serve already or he's about to. And there are people in your life that God's called you to impact uh, in many different ways. But when these big decisions get made, the logjam is clear. This is, this is the solution to the logjam this consecration process, this making a stand and saying, let it be what it's going to be. It's when the real mission begins. It's when real, real fruitfulness begins. It's when the church takes its eyes off itself and it looks up and then it looks out and that becomes our gaze and we put as much energy into out there as we do, as we do in here. That's when things start to happen. Different things occupy our minds and our hearts. Different things begin to happen. We see miracles, more miracles out there than we do here. That's the real gospel. I just want to finish, if, I, if you'll indulge me with a bit of time, I just want to really bring scripture. And I, was just, I put it here and I wasn't sure I would use it, but I, I sense that we, I need to bring it. And it's, it's lengthy. But it's from Ezekiel 47, and, and many of you will know this passage. But it talks about the, not only the heartbeat of God, but the method of God and how he works for, with his people. Because God's heart is for you. He loves you. And he loves everyone else that's not in here just as much, saved or unsaved. And he has a calling on their life. And if you want to see the miracle of God work, 
there's so much that can be done outside the church. And he paints this picture through the, the chapter of Ezekiel 47 of, of a river coming from the temple. And the river starts small and, he, and the story develops as the prophet puts his toe in the water. And the river represents God's power and his blessing and his agenda for the world. All that God's about is, is symbolised by this river that comes from the temple, a bit like it would be coming from church on Sunday. So here are God's people, we're all here. And this river flows and the river's always there. The river's never not been there. It's just a matter of are we jumping into this thing or not. And so the river's there and it's narrow and it's shallow and he puts it in and it's sort of ankle deep. Whoa, and he, and he goes a couple of hundred cubits down the road, which must be like a kilometre. He's gone for a walk with God. He goes, put your, put your foot in again. It's up to his ankles and his knees now, then up to his hips. Then he's just wading in the thing. And the further it goes, the deeper it gets and the wider it gets and the more chaotic and life-giving it gets. And you see this dynamic that the further we go out from safety, the more we're involved in this river that God's got flowing. Your workplace on a Monday morning is where this river is flowing. Your home when you're all worn out on a Friday afternoon and the kids are screaming and everyone hates each other. You know, it's like, now the river's right there. That's, that's where it's the deepest. And we can press in and, and jump in there uh, or choose not to. So he goes on. This is where I want to pick it up. It says, he said to me, this is God speaking to the prophet, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to, into the Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand there along the shore from En Gedi to En Glaim, where there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. This is life without a logjam. This is a life that says this building does not represent what is church because church has no walls. No walls. It's free and it goes and you are free and you're called to be free and who you are and who God's called you to be is out there at least as much as it's in here. And, and, and if we don't do that, if we just close the walls in like it looks like today you know, in, in appearance, it's like now it gets salty and it gets, it gets messed up and it gets mucky and it's got nothing to do so it just complains about itself and sends emails because the messages are no good, you know, and, and wants different songs and wants better lights and can we just change the PowerPoint, you know? It's just like we've got nothing else to worry about. So let's all worry about ourselves. No, kick the spiritual doors out. We don't belong here. There's another 167 hours of the week where God's with you and the further we go out, the deeper the current goes and the more power there is there. Amen? And so somehow we've got to, we've got to build this into the DNA in more and more levels of what we do around here to foster that, to empower that, to remind us of that. And so there'll be next steps along that and some of the things I'll talk about in weeks to come will be uh, the ways, this normal next steps that we can do because if the church has done anything badly over the years, it's, it's like we don't know how to unconstrain this logjam. But now we're saying, no, we're committed to unblocking this thing. And so I'm going to bring a, a, a message on this uh, acronym called BLESS, which is a great way to do real evangelism in our world without it being weird. It's like, how do I pray for, how do I bless my neighbours? How do I be God's person out in these places? 
And then we're going to start alpha groups. We're, we're doing alpha in a whole new way, just as a tool, and there may be more, in homes. And so as I asked last week, be praying, because God may be calling you to run alpha in your home with a whole bunch of people that wouldn't darken the door of a church. Let's go out, we'll run it out there, and we have Alpha Next, which follows on for that, so people who've visited Alpha might give their heart to Christ, and they can lead it themselves, and, and, and the whole thing can go on. Uh, we're going to talk about church planting teams and how that works out in practice, and how we can do that with real people and normal people, not just a pastor all the time. But this week, it's really, if the, if the, if the, the pipeline was open, if the river is out there, Am I in? Am I in? Am I prepared to say this world that I've lived, is, it's fun, it's, it's been great, Lord. Uh, he's, not, he's not calling it to end. He's just sort of saying, how about we live life to the full? Because life to the full is not a swamp. It's not a lake. It's not a billabong. It's a river that flows. And it means we've got, we've got to be courageous enough to go, yes, Lord, I haven't got what it takes and it's scaring me. But yes. We're out. And so he might be calling you to today to make that stand. And we're going to do baptisms next week. And, and I just encourage you, this is a great icon for your life. It's a great touch point, besides the fact that it's being obedient to Christ and who said, you know, repent and be baptised. And I realise there are different expressions people have had in their life of, of what this moment can look like. But if you've never been baptised and, and, and it's not for theological reasons, I would really encourage you, let's have 100 baptisms here next Sunday. If you haven't been baptised, send me an email, send me after this service or email me or contact us through the week and we'll, just take you, we'll brief you on that process about how we go through that. But let's, let's do that. Let's, let's not do it just because we don't feel led. I'm leading you. Feel led. I can say that because it's like mission. You don't have to pray about it. God just, Jesus said, go. Just, just get on with it. You know? uh, there's no question to be asked. But perhaps you, just, you know it's, it's your day to go through what Gideon went through where we just make a stand. We just, we just surrender and just say yes. And we give a sacrifice of praise. We, we, lay, we become living sacrifices for him and we, we build a proper altar in our life. We reconstruct our life to be God's people. And we tear down that stuff that's getting in the way. It's going to threaten us tomorrow. So why don't we just come, bow before him now in prayer. and Perhaps... As no one's looking, and, and this isn't a, a mechanical formula. I just want, if, if, if that is you, and please, just this is a, a sincere moment. If that is you, where it's, you know the Lord's been speaking to you in the last weeks and months about this, or today, just to make a stand. You don't know what next steps look like. You just know he's calling you to say yes, whatever the cost. I just invite you just to stand where you are, in the Lord's presence, as a touch point for you is to stand and go, Lord, yes. I don't know what it's going to cost. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm all in. If that's you, just please stand to your feet now as we pray. Father, we just come before you. We can do this at home. We, we know that, but, th but this is just a moment where, Lord, we've heard your word and your word is seated in our hearts and, and we just want it to be real. Father, we, we make this stand knowing that we can't follow through without your strength. We understand that. So our hands are up and we just say, Lord, I can't do it, but I'll go wherever you say. So Father, will you come and seal that your fire fall on sacrifice? 
Let your fire fall. Let it burn in our hearts. And let it be a burning for the gospel and a burning for mission and a burning for your cause and put before us the people who you've called us to touch. That we, our little candle from today can go out and light someone else's candle as well. Lord, combust us. Let us burn. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Bring your fire. Speak to us. Be with us. Lead us on in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and, and worship. And uh, we'll have some ministry over here for those who'd love to get some prayer after the service as well. Bless you, everyone.